0: Now we'll delve into those verses in a few moments' time, but let me just catch you up very quickly with a bit of the story so far. If you remember, this church in Thessalonica was planted by three guys, Paul, Silas and Timothy, and really they were only in Thessalonica for a matter of weeks, somewhere between 3 to 12 weeks max before persecution grew so incredibly fierce and intense that this early leadership team were forced to flee in a hurry, leaving this fledgling church incredibly vulnerable. And so when Paul writes to them a year later, which is the letter that we're reading right now, we're kind of on the edge of our seats, aren't we? We're we're, we're thinking this church is going to be floundering. But astonishingly, a year in, we discover that actually they are flourishing. And as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, chapter 1 is really loaded with Paul giving thanks for all the many strengths that he sees in them. Now, as we turn our attention then to chapter 2, that the focus very much shifts away from the Thessalonians and onto Paul, Silas and Timothy, and the example they set in the short time they were among the believers in Thessalonica. You see, in their absence, all manner of criticism and accusation has been lobbed in their direction, like they can't be trusted, or they're just in it for the money, or they don't really care about the church. So Paul sets out to remind the Thessalonians of how he lived when he was with them. And in so doing, he gives us a really helpful model for all leadership. We get this wonderful insight here into his motives and his priorities. And really... If you are in any kind of leadership, like if you're responsible for others, if there are people who report to you perhaps or look up to you or follow you in some shape, size or form, whether that's in the church or you run your own business or head up a team or department. I don't know, maybe you're a teacher or a parent or simply have younger brothers or sisters. In reality, most of us have some kind of leadership. And for all of us, I think there's a lot that we can learn here from Paul. Now, just so you know where we're heading, I want to highlight in the time that remains three priorities, or if you like, shifts of focus that Paul models for us in this passage. Here's the first one. He encourages us to focus on people but focus most on God. Focus on people, but focus most on God. Just to be clear, really in all leadership, we must focus on people. So I'm not saying ignore them. Paul says in verse 8, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. And in verse 11, he says, we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Really, the starting point for all leadership is a love and a care for people. Like, you can't just boss people around in leadership. Well, you can, but people won't follow you long term. Or they might because they haven't got any other option, but they won't have much respect for you. So, there's certainly not a lack of care for people in this passage. Far from it. The impression we get here is that Paul, Silas and Timothy poured out their lives for the Thessalonians in the short time they were with them. I mean, just notice in this passage how many times Paul emphasises how the Thessalonians had first-hand experience of what he's saying. Verse 1, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. Verse 2, you know how badly we've been treated at Philippi just before we came to you. Verse 5, never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. Verse 11, we were like children among you. Verse 9, don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked? among you. Verse 10, you yourselves are our witnesses. Verse 11, and you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Are you getting the message? Leadership is not separate from people. It's not aloof. It's not distant, it's not remote. But Paul's life was very much open to inspection, that the people he led had first had experience of how he lived. Paul modelled a leadership that was very much among people. He was visible, he was available, he was transparent, he was willing to go the distance for and with the people he led. He clearly loved them. He shared his life with them. He treated them as his own children. However, in all of this, his primary focus was God. Let's take another look at these verses. Just just notice the God-centred nature of all that Paul writes here. Verse 2, he says, Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. I tell you, it's incredibly dangerous as a leader to have courage in anything else other than God. You know, I think really that's one of the great lessons of these last 12 months. As a society, so many of the things we unthinkingly put our confidence in, they've been shaken, haven't they? And as a result, so many people all around us have been left frightened and lacking confidence. Listen, your qualifications, your wisdom, your wealth, your track record, your your own inner strength, the, the current sinking of our culture, none of it is guaranteed to give you courage when hardship, opposition and trouble comes. But when you draw courage from God like I can approach him with confidence because I stand in Christ I'm forgiven all condemnation is gone I'm chosen I'm loved I'm accepted I'm welcomed by him and if I can stand before him with boldness then let's face it I can stand before anyone yeah I'm weak but he chooses the weak things and clothes them with his strength. And really, it's this whole awareness of my weakness and my fragility that makes me dependent on him. And when I'm dependent on him, and you know what, I'm unstoppable. Do you see how strong courage from God equips you to handle whatever trouble comes your way? So by all means, focus on people but focus most on God. Verse 4, Paul says, For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Don't know what you think. I find this both incredibly sobering and incredibly freeing in equal measure. It's sobering because God examines our hearts. He he knows the motives behind what we do. He, He knows all the time if it's the real thing or simply fake. There's no denying it. It's sobering, isn't it? Not a little frightening to know that God sees everything. But it's also liberating and the source of tremendous comfort. I mean, he knows everything. He he sees us at our very worst, and yet he still loves us. No matter what abuse, accusation, criticism, or lies people smear us with, no, no matter what others think of us, the knowledge that we have the approval of God, that he's pleased with us, really that's all that matters. And it frees us to make courageous decisions you know one of the great temptations in leadership is often to try to keep people happy but if that is your main goal i tell you you are on a hiding to nothing because there are always going to be people who don't like what you're doing what's more if the whole time you're governed by what people think of you more often than not, you'll be tempted to try to give them what they want rather than what they need. But if you're living to please God, then you are set free to make the right but unpopular call. So, focus on people, but focus most on God. Verse 6, Paul writes, As for human praise... We have never sought it from you or anyone else. It's not that what other people think doesn't count. It's just that it doesn't count anywhere near as much as what God thinks. In short then, we must allow God to be a lot more in our gaze and our motives than people. Yeah, people matter, but God matters most. So focus on people, but focus most on God. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Focus on now, but focus most on then. Focus on now, but focus most on then. Verse 12, Paul says, We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy for he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. You know, the temptation can be to overstate living your best life now. It's like there's this constant fear, isn't there, of missing out, which again, I suggest goes some way to explaining why this last year has taken such a toll on us that there are so many opportunities that we've lost, aren't there? So many experiences that we've been starved of to the point that I think even the most positive and optimistic ones of us are beginning to reach the conclusion that life right now isn't particularly great. But Paul says here that ultimately you are called to share in God's kingdom and glory. He's saying, your primary calling isn't to things in this world, but to things in the next world. Don't get me wrong. It's very clear that we're to live in a ways that God would consider worthy, so we are to focus on the now, but our ultimate calling is very much future. I'll tell you the overwhelming weight of Scripture is for the next life. That The whole thrust is that we're to be people focused on eternity. As Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 puts it, God has set eternity in the human heart. And here's the thing. If we're clear that we have a hope beyond the grave, then that gives us a whole new motivation in the here and now. It's like that the people who understand this will live very differently. In no uncertain terms, we are to live now in light of then. Both Paul and Jesus regularly spoke, didn't they, of the new heaven and earth as a wonderful place. Paul, right to the Romans, states that your present suffering is not worth comparing with that. So when we go through suffering and bereavement and loss and disappointment and regret, we need to keep reminding ourselves that heaven is going to be wonderful. The Bible teaches that somehow in the age to come, there is a full redemption of all that we've lost in this life. It's hard to imagine how, but Every wrong will be righted. Somehow, God will rework and redeem and restore everything. Which perhaps goes some way to explaining why Paul was able to instruct the Philippians that the life to come is far better than this life. It's far better. And so, really it goes without saying that good leadership is shaped by eternity. It sees long-term. Ultimately, it sees beyond the grave. That should be the emphasis, the bias. It's not that God doesn't have blessings for us in this life, but we are called all the time to the kingdom and glory to come. You know, it's taken a global pandemic to wake us up, the reality of death and the only answer that this culture has is a vaccine that let's face it simply delays the inevitable vaccine or no vaccine we will still all die eventually but when we're simply living for the now then we'll desperately do all we can to prolong our life and we're petrified of losing it like next month I turn 50 if I stay healthy you never know I could have another 20 or 30 years ahead of me but there is no guarantee I could be entering my final decade now if this life is all there is i'll tell you it puts tremendous pressure on to try and squeeze as much out of the time left as I possibly can. I mean, if death is the end, you've got to fit in all the pleasure now, and that is some pressure. But because death isn't the cut-off point. In fact, not just not the cut-off point, as we've seen, that the Bible couldn't be clearer that after death is way better. That is completely liberating. C.S. Lewis, writes in the last battle about moving from this world to Narnia. He writes, all of their life in this world had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before that is a great analogy of what it will be like in the life to come for those who know Jesus and compared with that life on earth is so short it's like the width of the room you're in right now is all of eternity and compared to that your life is just this thick. It's merely the cover and title page. That is the width of your time on earth. And so, I think we can afford to give it to Jesus because it's such a short time and we've got all of eternity to look forward to. Martin Luther famously said, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that day which kind of feels pertinent right now, doesn't it? As we try and work out what Boris's roadmap is going to mean for us, as we count off the days, as we perhaps worry about how long it's all going to take, I think we'd do well to focus, yeah, on today, but most of all on that day, that great day when Jesus welcomes us into the place he's prepared for us. To quote... C.S. Lewis once more, Is those who think most about the next life who are most fruitful for God in this life. Listen, because death is not the end, it's simply the end of the beginning, we are set free to live radical lives in the here and now. So focus on now, but focus most on them. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, make demands, but focus most on serving. Make demands, but focus most on serving. There's this theme running throughout this whole passage of being undemanding. Verse seven, don't know if you noticed, Paul says, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you. But instead, we were like children among you. So it's not that it's wrong to make demands. And actually, Paul will make some demands of them later on in this letter. But his posture was very much of one who serves. So, for example, he got a second job tent making while he was with them so as not to be a drain on them financially verse 9 he says don't you remember dear brothers and sisters how hard we worked among you night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you now just to say let's not get this wrong financial generosity is a big part of following Jesus the Bible is clear that we should give and generously And passages like 1 Timothy 5 make it crystal clear that we shouldn't muzzle the ox, that the worker very much deserves their wages. Point is that if an ox works, it should be able to eat. Implication, it is appropriate for leaders who serve to be paid. But that being said, as leaders, we're certainly not in it for the money. No, we're to be content. Would it be more eager to serve than to gain financially? That's 1 Peter 2. In short, it's much better for people to offer than for leaders to demand. And I think things kind of get a bit out of kilter when it flips and ends up being the other way round. When the leader usurps the instruction to followers and demands that they're not muzzled and are paid their due or when the followers usurp the leadership scriptures and demand that the leaders are content with what they've got. In summary, it is better for leaders not to make demands, and for followers not to make them want to. It's interesting. Paul wasn't emotionally demanding either. He wasn't financially demanding. He wasn't emotionally demanding either. Verse 7, he describes how we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. And in verse 11, he says, you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Again, the point being that mothers and fathers give more than they receive. And I think this undemanding principle is really important for us as we lead. Whether it's at home, at work, in the church, really wherever, it's like well, we should make it our aim for the feel to be that as leaders, we're there more for the benefit of the people than the other way around. So there you have it. If you carry any kind of leadership, three things to prioritise. Number one, focus on people, but focus most on God. Secondly, focus on now, but focus most on then. Thirdly, by all means make demands, but focus most on serving. Now through all of this, I suggest that Paul's appeal in verse 12 acts as a great summary. He says, we pleaded with you, encouraged you and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. It's like Paul's out to point to a whole load of examples of how he lived a life worthy of God and then he turns it around and says to the Thessalonians and by implication to us as well that's how you should live live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy which is challenging isn't it because I guess if we are brutally honest, we'd all have to admit there is a bit of a gap between what we say we believe and how we live. But that gap should be growing smaller every single day we follow Jesus. And let's be real, if that gap is too large, then nobody's going to take us seriously. Not talking about being perfect. Certainly not talking about earning God's love. No, we start from a place of being sons and daughters loved by God. But from that place, we're then to live a life worthy of God. It's simply an appeal to live up to and out of what we believe and who we are. And so, as I draw to a close, why don't you reflect on this? Where's there a gap in your life? Is it in this whole area of living for God more than people? Or is it living now in light of the future? Or is it serving others? Where's there a gap? And what steps can you take to close it?